All right, I'm ready. Ready? Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is Pushing Water by Dana Kane. Just because Penn's River is an economic backwater doesn't mean it's immune from current events. An active shooter at a local discount store leaves several people dead and the shooter in the wind. Maybe. It's hard to say as the man arrested at the scene definitely shot someone but claims to be a good guy with a gun. Meanwhile, a Canadian fugitive lands in town and pulls a job to tide him over while his cache of cash makes its way across the border. He and his partner, a local just dumb enough to serve the purpose, sees an opportunity and begins a robbery spree while the police focus on clearing the mass shooting. The usual small town hijinks go on. There's a robbery in a new strip club, an old woman wanders off, a domestic situation that starts with an argument over cookies and turns violent, and a widower of a past victim needs attention. The Canadian Mountie who came to town hunting the fugitive may be helpful or more trouble than he's worth. Penn River's economic status may be static, but the level of mayhem seems to only rise. Pushing Water from Dana King is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite ebook sources. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of mystery, murder, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. This is Season 1. The first half of the season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, hard-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from previous. Really, you have to listen in order for the story to make sense. Start with the episode called, What a Lovely Corpse You Have, and catch up to us from there. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of characters in the show notes to help keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, burying the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond had her sights set on Rome, the place of Gabrielle's death, but was sidetracked by an interloper who raided her refrigerator. With Andrew Dixon safely away from his abusive father, Diamond can finally, finally catch that plane to Italy. Today's story is about a lion, 15 letter words, and a room key. This is episode five, Grieving Widow Seeks Husband Seducing Biatch. Spring had taken hold of Rome. 
Beneath my window, I watched Italians walk leisurely along the narrow street before the midday break, basking in the warm and bright sun. Tourists did the same, but pointed out sights to each other and stopped to window gaze. Their cameras and bags hung across Rubenesque figures, bisecting breasts on men and women alike. I yawned, which reminded me I'd been awake for, shit, longer than I could figure. It would have been smart to sleep after I got Andrew Dixon settled in. Instead, I poured over Ian Black's files like syrup over pancakes. Speaking of food, Dix nosed his way in like an overgrown lapdog. It didn't matter how many times I slapped his nose, he just kept coming back for more. I thought of his father, and I stopped pushing him away. When I couldn't talk about my work, he started talking. I listened. He had plans, and even had plans for his plans. It got to me, knowing that this was the last time I would see him. I left him with a restocked refrigerator and enough cash for him to make his start. I hoped he would make it. A bird swooped close to my window, drawing me back to the here and now. I called my voicemail and there was a message from Alexei Rupchinsky, my brother-in-law. The stress in his voice mixed anger, frustration, and insult into a Russian-English rant. I had to listen three times to get the picture. Short and sweet. Julie Liu, my husband's successor at the university, she saw Alexei for about 10 minutes. She claimed the work in the lab as fully and solely her own and dismissed my husband's contributions. Alexei promised a lawsuit. He also promised to give her the Russian evil eyes so her quinoa plants would wither like her heart. Hoped he was talented like that. Sitting on the wide windowsill, I laid my head against the window frame and closed my eyes. I'd been in Rome a half dozen times, but never as a tourist. Only the last one haunted me. Refusing to be tormented, I, I just invited the memories in. The blurs of light and colors raced by as if moving at a hundred miles an hour. That's what it was like my first hours as a widow. Cobblestones formed beneath my feet. I had heels on and, and I couldn't walk evenly on the rounded stones. And It's proof enough that I wasn't in my right mind. I knew better than to wear, old, wear heels in old cities. Nameless people encouraged me along, but I wasn't fast enough and they all pulled away. Fear of being alone swamped me. I took off my shoes and ran. There's no ambient sound, no underlying rhythm setting the tempo for my life. My own heartbeat pulsed in my ears, through a door, into a building, and then I sat in a waiting room on a chair upholstered in a worn red velvet. A woman spoke to me, her voice sounding more like music than conversation. I didn't understand a word. No, I hadn't been in full command of myself the last time I was here. I fucked up not bringing Ian with me the first time. He barreled through bullshit the way pigs went through slop. He wouldn't have accepted the ready explanations, and he would have called them out. I wouldn't have either if I'd been sane. I wouldn't make the same mistake this time. I had two hours before my meeting with the event coordinator at the hotel that hosted Gabriel's conference. It had established, Ian had established my cover as Selena Mata, a junior investigator for an insurance company. The interview was standard company protocol to verify the details ahead of a very large payout on a life insurance policy. Ian had arranged the meeting with the event coordinator and a translator to help me. With the event coordinator's help, I would know every movement leading up to Gavriel walking out those doors and into the street. Flapping down in the bed, I ordered my brain to turn off. For Gavriel, please, just turn the fuck off.
pitching hand found the damn phone and airmailed it to the next door. It bounced off the wall came back as I came back to my senses. Rome, meeting, Gabrielle. The phone rang again, the tone muffled by the carpet. Cursing myself, I rolled off the bed and played fetch. Hello? My thick, husky voice didn't resemble my own. Signora Mata, this is Carlo Giancarlo. The voice sung to me in a broken English, a pitch too high for a man. Seriously? Is this some kind of fucked up game, Carlo Giancarlo? Got out of bed for this. Uh, this is no game, Signora. Signor Nero, um, Black. Signor Black said to meet you here at three. The clock on the bedside table showed three on the dot. I need a few minutes. I hung up on him. A hot shower had me firing on all cylinders. Opening two cases, I transformed into Selena Mata. Rose-scented lotion. Blonde hair with caramel streaks. Blue eyes. Delicate makeup. An insurance investigator isn't one to slather on the sex paint. Business attire. Beige skirt. White blouse. Simple shoes. Flats with rubber soles. Perfect. My costume asked sashayed down the stairs and into the hotel foyer. Ian knew what he was doing. The family-owned hotel was close enough to be close enough to the beaten path to be convenient but far enough away to be discreet. The only man in the foyer was a 20-something Italian leaning on the registration desk and flirting with the girl behind it. He was under six foot but his long lean lines gave the impression he was taller. His hair was chocolate brown and curled at the ends. His eyes matched the hair, even the curl, giving him a devilish appearance in the way that every girl dreamt about. Carlo? He immediately dropped the girl's attention when work called, Bon pomeriggio, Signor Mata. He came toward me with a toothy smile and an extended hand. I held mine up, English, and call me Selena. Let's do this. Carlo bowed his head, recalling his hand but keeping the smile. Of course, our appointment is at four o'clock. We should arrive comfortably. He led the way into the streets of Rome, pointing out buildings and sharing interesting tidbits I couldn't care less about. A few minutes on constantly changing streets and we were at the subway. Ten minutes later, we surfaced on a street identical to the one we left. Identical, until we turned the corner. I staggered, tripped over my own corporately cultured feet when I recognized the street I had stared at for hours through a stranger's lens. The day faded and the night rose like a monster from the shadows. I saw the blue awning stretching over the sidewalk, bright lights illuminating Ilion, the lion. From the mouth, I saw Gabriel walking down the sidewalk, coming to me. He was unmistakable in the rumpled brown suit I threatened to burn but just couldn't bring myself to do. An arm caught me around the waist, Carlo's arm. I made a fist, ready to help Romeo understand where my personal space ended and his pain began. Careful, Selena. The traffic may not be heavy, but it is fierce. He forced me to take a step back before dropping his arm. My feet were inches from the curb's edge. How easy it would have been to fall into the street as Gavriel had. Carlo pointed to the stone facade looming over us. We are here. The Lion is one of Rome's most exclusive hotels. I'd done my homework. It's, it hosted dignitaries, celebrities, and more than a few presidents. The Queen. And what were a group of ag geeks doing in a place like this? 
Shall we go inside? Carlo led the way, nodding to the doorman who granted us entry. He spoke in rapid Italian, and I nodded, caughting a word here or there, mostly the name of our target, Isabella D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio embodied the opulence and luxury of Ilion. She had a gravity-defying figure. Her impressive chest, swaddled in antique lace, entered the room well ahead of the rest of her. The dress hugged her narrow waist, and graciously flared to accommodate hips built to cradle a man. She was in a class with Marilyn Monroe, Anna Nicole Smith, and Sofia Vergara. Her face? Yeah, she had a face, but yikes, the body. I mean, I'm straight and I had a hard time keeping my eyes off of her. Carlo? He tripped over his tongue on the way into her office. Buon pomeriggio, signor Amata, signor Giancarlo. Oh, Carlo turned the charm on to high, and the two were off in a rhapsody of fluid Italian that I couldn't decipher. Zenofra left her desk for one of the three full-size filing cabinets. This woman was old school. Sure, there was a computer on her desk, but the drawer of the file cabinet she pulled out was full. This was a woman who believed in print. Back at her desk, she opened the file and began reading. Carlo glanced at me. He saw it, too. Tenofrio continued her monologue as she extracted a thick manila file. I stood up, drawing Tenofrio's attention to me. Parle inglese? I crammed a few phrases in the sleepless hours on the plane. Where's the bathroom? Do you speak English? Did you kill my husband? You know, just the necessities. Well, yes, of course, Signor Amada. I understand your company is interested in the Feed the World Summit we hosted last year. D'Onofrio smiled, humoring me. I hate being humored. I'm interested in Mr. Gabriel Rubchinsky. He had a large policy with our company, and our protocol is to thoroughly investigate the circumstances of all unnatural deaths. Is that your file on Mr. Rubchinsky? I pointed to the open folder with my chin. D'Onofrio pulled the file closer like a selfish child determined to keep a toy for herself. No, not of him specifically. I keep a file on each corporate function. It, it helps to tailor our services upon their return. Such an elite venue for a summit on world hunger. The juxtaposition of a meeting to solve third world problems in a place where a cup of coffee costs $20 smelled fishy to me. Thank you, we do try. D'Onofrio sat taller in her chair folding her hands over the file as she graciously accepted the compliment I didn't give. Whatever. As long as she told me what I needed, I didn't care. Scusi, Giancarlo said. Fading into a corner on a pretense of taking a call, he turned in a slow circle as he spoke, discreetly photographing the room, just, you know, for future reference. I kept Denofra's attention on me. Did you coordinate the event personally? The CEO of, of the CEO of the sponsor, Agnow, made the request personally with our president, and we were happy to accommodate. Mr. Winston is a frequent guest, a generous man. Buford Winston, again! My fingers itched to give the old cowboy a lesson in how to choke a weasel. Dinofrio preened as she spoke about Winston, making me wonder how generous Blowhard Buford had been with his generously proportioned Dinofrio. Sounds as though this was an important conference for you. 
It was such a shame. It wasn't a sigh of sympathy or of grief. It was a self-serving regret associated with having one's personal plans inconvenienced by a little thing like a man's death. My upper lip curled, exposing my canines. Gabriel Ruchinsky's death didn't fit into your program? Zinofrio's face stilled as her hazel eyes locked on mine. She instantly appeared a decade older and twice as formidable. Or maybe it was her hands curling into claws. Senor Ruchinsky was out on the street and carelessly slept in front of traffic. Easily explained. But Francisco Thalen, his death was distasteful. She shook her head, returning to her cultured facade. But he is not your concern. What can I tell you about Senor Ruchinsky? I apologize for rushing you, but pressing issues must be seen to. My tablet was readied for notes. Mr. Upchinsky attended a reception here on the night of his death. Yes, Agnow sponsored a grand reception. A popular band played. Tickets were sold with proceeds going to the charity led by Mr. Winston. Mr. Upchinsky attended, as did most of the scientists and leaders attending the broader event. Did Mr. Upchinsky stay for the entire event? No, no. The security film showed him leaving near nine in the evening. The band was soon to take the stage and the crowd had gathered, but Mr. Rubchinsky, he was seen leaving on his own. What happened after he left the hotel? I am afraid all I have is speculation. We know he exited to the right on foot and shortly after he was out of the camera range, ambulance and police were called. Did the other man, Francisco Thalen, did he die? Has your... He has a policy with your company? No, D'Onofrio stood. I have other commitments I need to attend to. I hope my answers have been useful. With the skill and dexterity of a politician, she had us out of her office, down the hall, and standing in the very opulent public atrium, taking her hand, shaking her hand. Carlo and I stood under the fresco ceiling in silence as D'Onofrio hurried across the atrium, disappearing through French doors. Oops, I said to Carlo. I left my purse in her office. I'll wait here for you. Carlo took a position leaning against the embroidered Queen Anne chair with a clear line of sight to those French doors. Women and their purses. With the same casual demeanor, I returned to the hallway, to the office. The middle cabinet, second drawer, was ruthlessly organized. The file I wanted was labeled Agnow. When you have limited time to accomplish a task, the key isn't to move fast, it's to move precisely and efficiently. A drowning man who flails about only drowns himself faster. It's the man who can stay calm and put energy to work for him who survives. Using the tablet, I photographed every page. D'Onofrio was placidly OCD. The file included the police reports for both Gabrielle and Francisco Thalen, handwritten reports from hotel security staff and witness statements, newspaper clippings. Oh, sure, they were all in Italian, but I had Carlo Giancarlo. The closing leaf of the file had a thumb drive attached to it. The Italian scrawl on the sticky note was easy enough to decipher. Security footage. I returned the rest of the file and closed the drawer, keeping the space neat. I trusted Carlo to keep D'Onofrio away, but shit happens. Better to be prepared. The middle desk drawer contained a rubber-banded stack of identical thumb drives. 
It was the work of five seconds to pocket the original and replace it with a blank. The door handle turned. Isabella? Dove? The uniformed man froze in the doorway, was still wove, still wearing, still waiting for his pubes to grow in. I turned on the waterworks. The long veil of hair veiled my face as I sobbed with grief. Remember my mother? Back at the funeral in episode one? Yeah, I nailed it. Scoozy, scoozy! He froze in the doorway, a deer in the headlights. I sniffled like a pig rooting for troubles. I, I just need a moment. Um, un momento. Suttamai, scusi, scusi. And he was gone. Luck shined on me by sending a man. A woman may have felt the need to console me, but a man, tears make them run faster than the bulls of Pamploma. Sucker. Leveraging the distressed woman cover, I snatched a tissue from D'Onofrio's desk and left the office with my head down, sniffling and dabbing my face. Carlo had his own cover. His lips were locked on D'Onofrio's. He dipped her low, so low she had no choice but to wrap her arms around his neck to keep from falling. I walked toward the door, crossing Carlo's line of sight. A twitch of his brow acknowledged me. He didn't rush the kiss, but maybe that's an Italian thing. They didn't rush meals. They didn't rush down the sidewalk. Why would they rush kissing? Carlo brought D'Onofrio upright, holding her when she swayed. Her cheeks were flush, her lips swollen, and her eyes wide with <coughs> admiration. She threw herself onto Carlo. His mouth belonged to her as, she, as he staggered backwards, his hand finding purchase on the back of a high chair. Hot damn! I couldn't see Carlo's face, but his wide arms and broad stance said he'd been blindsided. I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Mr. Giancarlo, I believe you're on my time. D'Onofrio lifted her head. The eyes of a hungry cougar bore into me, but she released Carlo. He turned to me, and I had to bite my tongue to stop from laughing. His eyes were so wide that the whites were just surrounding that chocolate surface island. His lips were sunset red, her lipstick color, matching the flush in his cheeks. He regained his composure and returned his attention to D'Onofrio for a gracious ending. Taking her hands in his Carlo, kissed her knuckles. He said something and she smiled. He stepped away and she began to take a step forward, but Carlo held up a hand, staying another assault. He spun and left on wicked fast strides, grabbing my elbow as he passed. I made it around the corner and then <laughs> the tears the tears made it impossible to keep walking. You know, a glance at Carlo's face and it's just oh I laughed so much harder. He appeared just so affronted, insulted, accosted. I um I really appreciate you taking one for the team, Carlo. His brows quirked at the Americanism. What you did back there, like letting her eat you up. Did she leave bite marks? I tugged at his collar. Yeah, she did. Carlo slapped my hands away. She did not leave marks. He walked to the window and pulled down his collar. Three red lines streaked from under his jaw to his collarbone. His head snapped to me, his eyes wide with shock, and his mouth in a perfect O. She marked me. Carlo was obviously used to being the seducer rather than the seducee. His expression brought out a new wave of laughter. He scowled because, well, he knew I wasn't laughing with him. I was laughing at him. 
erratic chuckles, chuckles escaped as I tried to get out with business. Okay, okay, okay. I need a computer and a printer. I have a, I have a small office you can use. Perfect. <laughs> we can stop by the pharmacy and get some disinfectant for the scratches. Carlo muttered in Italian as he led the way. Once and again, he pressed his fingers to his throat, staunching the thin lines of blood pressing to the surface. Black owes me. <laughs> Carlo's small office was a closet in his apartment. Size aside, it had a new laptop with a large flat screen, a commercial grade printer, and all the accoutrements I needed. He connected my tablet, downloaded the images, and sent them to print. I was intimately familiar with the report on my husband. I took the time to make sure every word and every line was identical to the one I'd received and had translated. This was old news. I collected a small group of pages, stapled them together, and handed them to Carlo. Read the report on Thalen. Francisco Thalen, age 42, Next akin is a wife and two children. Carlo read the facts with the same enthusiasm he would a grocery list. Colleagues noted he complained of not feeling well after the band started about 9.10 to 9.20. A maid found him dead in the bathroom the following morning. The photos were brutal. Thalen died with his pants around his ankles in a pool of his own blood and feces. My guess was he fell off the throne during a bout of diarrhea, smashed his head on the corner of the counter next to him. It wasn't a pretty way to die. Carlo flipped back and forth between two pages. He was poisoned. I leaned over his shoulder, but the report was nothing but alphabet soup with a double helping of vowels. Were they sure? See, a dose of... He held it out for me to read. Organophosphate. English didn't add sense to the 15-letter word. With my chemistry and background, I, I understood what it was by classification. As far as what it did, I knew it didn't go boom. What is it? Carlo brought up the internet and typed it in. The search engine returned hundreds of thousands of hits, but the front page told us enough. Insecticides, herbicides, nerve agents. He read the results as he changed the website language to English. What are the symptoms of poisoning? Carlo clicked on the third entry. Moderate to severe symptoms include chest discomfort, heavy sweating, loss of muscle control, involuntary urination, and bowel movement. Bah. I straightened up to pace. We have a man at an ag conference killed with an insecticide. Did they figure it out? Did they figure out what he was poisoned with? Carlo returned to the printed pages. It was in his drink. He must have carried it up to his room. Do you think Rubchinsky's death is related to this man's? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't expecting there to be a second death. How could they be related? Rubchinsky was pushed into the street long before Thalen was killed. Before he was found, Carlo corrected. The time of death set near 10. The notes indicate he likely ingested the toxin between 8.30 and 9.30, which sandwiches the time Gabriel died. We need to watch the video, Carlo, tracking both men. The thumb drive contained video feeds from five cameras. Two covered the main atrium, two covered the exterior entrance. 
One covered the interior entrance. Carlo arranged all five feeds on large screens and took them all to seven o'clock. Then he set them in motion. The night of the event, the opulent atrium was the place to be. Away from the business of guests checking in and out was a long buffet, four portable bars, and a dozen graciously spaced high-top tables. Signs pointed to the same French doors Donofio had disappeared through. This was where the band had played. There's my husband. Gabriel stepped out of the elevator in his favorite brown suit. A woman stepped out with him, smoothing her skirt over her legs. He said something to her, laid a hand on her shoulder, and she beamed at him. Pardon my French, but who the fuck is the bitch with my husband? Leaning in, I got close and personal with the woman. Over 30, dark hair, nose too big for her face. She wore a black dress and black shoes. I looked for something remarkable about her because when I found this woman, I wanted to be sure I was kicking the right ass. Can you zoom in on that woman? You're in the way. Carlos shouldered me aside. He froze all the images and maximized the one I wanted. She had a small mole on her left cheek under the corner of her eye, and she wore a necklace with a charm. Her hand was covering it, undoubtedly a habit. Carlos set the screens back. Who is she? I don't know yet. I didn't take my eyes off my husband. He wound his way through the clustered crowd to a group near the bar. There is Thalen. Carlo pointed to one of the men in the group, drink in hand. Gabriel now stood next to him with the woman on his other side. Even with the two cameras, we couldn't see all the faces. There were eight in all. Gabriel and the woman, Thalen, four men, a small Asian woman, a head and a half shorter than the rest. Her I recognize, Gabriel's assistant at the university, Dr. Julie Liu. The characters jerked like marionettes as the feed moved quickly through time. Drinks, laughter, more drinks, more laughter, ha ha ha, appetizers, enter a big man. I slapped a hand on Carlo's arm. Slow it down. What's Blowhard Buford doing? Carlo mirrored my posture. He is speaking to Rubchinsky. Neither is happy. We were both pitched forward, two alpha males unwilling to back down. The rest of the group shifted, glaring at Buford with narrowed eyes and tight mouth. They didn't like what Buford was spewing, but no one said a word. The woman laid a hand on Gabriel's forearm. His posture instantly stilled. His mouth moved one last time. Then my husband turned his back on Buford. Buford made a parting comment before walking out of the camera shot. The group closed back in, but the easy, congenial body language, well, that was gone. A waiter entered from the bottom of the screen carrying a tray of drinks. He excused himself and handed one of the drinks to Gabriel. My husband spoke to the waiter, who shook his head and then left to deliver his remaining drinks. Eight, then ten minutes passed. The characters in this little play all looked uncomfortable. Lots of heads down, not much laughter. Lou spoke to Gabriel. He shook his head, set the drink down, and ran his fingers through his hair. I wish I could hear what he said. Then it was the mystery woman's turn. She put her hand on Gabriel's arm and spoke to him. He went into his coat pocket and pulled out a room key. Oh no, he didn't. He handed it to her. The son of a bitch. The woman walked across the foyer and was swallowed up by the elevator. She returned minutes later wearing a coat and carrying a canvas bag like you would use for groceries. 
She returned Gabrielle's key and he walked her out to the door. Center stage of one of the exterior cameras, he kissed her forehead. She said a few words and then left. Okay, Gabrielle returned to his friends. The group was smaller. Dr. Lou was no longer present. They were also down a man. One of the men greeted him as he returned. Gabriel gestured with his hands in response <clears throat> the way he did when he agreed or conceded a point. Lou re-entered the scene, a pained expression on her face. My husband leaned down, bringing his ear closer to her mouth. He shook his head, then spoke briefly, and then he left the table. She left at nearly the same time, but going in the opposite direction. Keep your eyes on Thalen. I got Gabriel. Gavriel didn't hurry. His gait was notably relaxed, casual even. He exited the building. The camera angle limited the view to 20, maybe 30 feet. Seconds after he left the frame, the people in the video abruptly turned. Gavriel was dead again. Carlo pointed to the screen. Selena, he's drinking! Tears burned my eyes, but I couldn't see the screen anymore. Just keep your eye on him. I spun out of the chair and paced the room, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Thalen, he went into the concert. I'm fast forwarding it. People zipped in and out like ants on speed. Here he is again. He's staggering. Is he drunk? His arms around his belly like it hurts. What time is it? Mm, nine and a quarter. He is going up in the elevator. My phone chimed, pulling my attention away from the screen. You might as well stop the video. He's not coming back down. A text came in. I know who she is. Call me. So a dead woman has no friends. So, the question must be asked, who the fuck was texting me? I paced Carlos' shoebox-sized apartment, studying the seven ditchers, digits that began with the familiar area code. You might guess it was Ian Black, but it wasn't. He would have left a message on my voicemail with a secure number for a return call. He did not have this number. He would not have texted. And thus ended the short list of people who would have contacted me. Or did it. A knuckle wrap to the contact and... That's it for this week of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter. How do you say busted in Russian? If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of one spray of Isabella D'Onofrio's perfume, you can join our Body Brag Brigade to help support our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf. Published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs>